1: Hi, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the South Sports and Stuff podcast. Really, really happy and really proud that so many of you have come out and downloaded and subscribed via iTunes. I really appreciate that, and I invite you to, if you haven't yet, again, go to iTunes, search South Sports at iTunes, all one word. It's the South Sports and Stuff podcast. And here I talk with interesting people who have interesting lives, interesting jobs, interesting stories, whatever. Just some things that I really find interesting myself that I think you will as well. Today, going to talk with somebody who has a much different story than the first two podcasts that we did. Today's is a lot more upbeat and a little bit more lighthearted. In fact, a lot more lighthearted than the heavy stuff we did the first two times around. The guy's name is Ryan Nobles. Ryan pretty much is... Well, I guess you'd say he's the beat reporter for Capitol Hill at CNN. And the reason why I reached out to Ryan, he's actually from upstate New York. He's actually a big Bills fan. Him and I got to know each other, and I find his job fascinating. And I think you're going to as well, because we're going to get into a lot of different topics with with Ryan regarding what his job entails, what it's like every day covering Capitol Hill, the White House, crazy stories, things like that. It's going to be very cool, very interesting. I want you to hear this. It's not just about Ryan. It's about his job, and it's about all of that, and plus, of course... He is a Buffalo Bills fan. I'll ask him about the 2017 season as well. So we're going to get to that right now. It is Ryan Nobles of CNN. He is the Washington correspondent up on Capitol Hill. I hope you enjoy it. Sal Sports and Stuff. Ryan, it's really good to talk to you. I really appreciate you doing this here on the Sal Sports and Stuff podcast. When I started um, thinking about this podcast, you were one of the first people I thought about. I thought that it would be really cool to kind of bring somebody into the fold to talk about you know, s- things that really have nothing to do with sports, but at the same time, I know <laughs> you're a lover of sports, and uh, we both share a very common interest in the Buffalo Bills.
0: No doubt about that, Sal. And, and before we get into it, I, you're a very humble guy, so you probably won't talk about how hard you've worked to get where you are, but this might come as a surprise to you, but I've been following your career. For quite some time, I distinctly remember uh, your Twitter uh, handle popping up on my Twitter feed uh, about some guy in Florida who had an online uh, TV show, and he was breaking <laughs> the news that the Bills were talking to Bill Cowher, and I'm yeah. and, and, and such a huge Bills fan that I consume everything, and I'm like, i got to find out about this, and I remember tuning into your internet uh, TV show that you had from your uh, office in Florida when you were still a teacher, Uh, breaking that news, and then to see how well you've done and and that you're back in Buffalo, and and you and everybody at WGR do do such a great job of connecting those of us that uh, don't live in western New York anymore uh, with our home teams. And so I appreciate all the work that you guys do. And to see how well you've done is, has been pre- been pretty exciting considering I've been following you for so long.
1: Thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. You know, most people say they uh, remember the, the TO signing that I broke uh, the year before that, but it's funny you bring that up. I'm glad you opened that door. Uh, I haven't really talked ever much about that bill Cowher stuff because that was really true. Now uh, the bills denied it. Uh, most of the reports denied it. They basically made fun of me because I was some guy trying to <laughs> make a name, but it was true. And, you know, now that we can talk about it years later, uh, Um, The Bills absolutely did pursue Bill Cower when they wound up hiring Chan Gailey. And the funny thing is, to kind of prove it, Cower's the one that suggested they hired Chan Gailey when they had him in and they talked to him. And um, the reason why Cower didn't go down that road with the Bills, we didn't know at the time, I knew this, I couldn't say anything, Cower's wife was sick, and she actually wound up passing away within a year or two after that. But that's why he did not jump back into coaching, but he was very interested in the Bills at that time.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, your reporting on that was spot on. And I also think that... What you demonstrated at that time, and I talk to young journalism students about this all the time, is that you, know, you weren't uh, working uh, professionally at that time, uh, but you know, we live in an environment right now where everyone is a reporter. You know, we all have these instruments that can broadcast out to the world. Uh, with a, just a, a simple push of a button and and you found a way to get yourself out out there and you know you obviously have good connections and that's obviously led to where you are today and and I always tell young girls and students all the time you know back when I started back in the the uh, the late 90s you needed uh, you know the big apparatus of a of a television or radio station to get your your message out Young people that are starting now don't need that. The the technology is equalized, and, and it's a lot easier to get yourself out there, and you're a living example of that for sure.
1: I appreciate that a lot. Um, You know, it's really uh, been a great career. I love what I do for a living, but I want to talk about what you do for a living because I I see you on TV. uh, I follow your Twitter and it seems to me like you love what you do for a living as well. Let's start there. Uh, When did you know? When did you think that you might want to be involved in television? And then from there, when did you know or think you wanted to be involved in politics?
0: Yeah, so I've been uh, a fan of television my entire life. I grew up uh, in western New York. I was born in North Tonawanda, wow. uh, but all my fourth of years were in Chautauqua County, just outside Jamestown, New York. I went to Casadega Valley High School, um, and I was a three-sport athlete at Casadega. You could do that at a Class C school, um, uh, but I was also just obsessed with uh, broadcasting and, and performing, really. Um, and so I used to, my friends uh, to this day, and I'm sure there's I have friends still in Western New York that are going to listen to podcast who can confirm this, that, you know, we, I used to go to the the girls' high school basketball games when our teams weren't playing, and I used to pretend to do the play-by-play uh, in the stands uh, at our high school basketball games. And, you know, I did the morning announcements uh, at our high school, and then, so I was pretty focused uh, from, an, uh, from an early age on this wanting to be my career, and I was also very interested in politics. Politics and sports have always been the two passions of my life, and um, I ended up going to uh, Brockport um, for college. and And when I went to Brockport, my my focus was that I really wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And so uh, when I was at Brockport, I covered a lot of the Rochester sports teams. I covered all the Buffalo sports teams through our college radio station uh, WBSU, which is one of the best college radio stations in the in the in the state. And From there, you know, my career just took off. I interned at a TV station in Rochester, WHEC, Channel 10. Uh, Rich Funky, who's now a a state senator out of Rochester, was one of my mentors there. He was a sports director. Um, And then my first big television gig was in Utica, New York um, uh, in the late 90s, and I started as a sportscaster there. And I worked uh, four years covering sports, high school sports, but I also covered the Bills. I covered Syracuse football in basketball, I followed uh, Syracuse basketball in the 2000 uh, NCAA tournament when they made a Sweet 16 run, um, and then I got an opportunity to switch to news. Um, uh, at a, you know, around the three-year mark in that at my time in Utica, and I gobbled up that chance, and I've been in news ever since.
1: Well, tell me about that switch. Like, was it presented to you as a hey, this is a great opportunity, and you should do it? Was it do you, would you like to do it? And then, you know, how tough was that decision for a guy that really was focused on maybe being in sports?
0: You know, it was it was a really a pivotal time in my life. You know, I always kind of considered myself a journalist first and a sports guy second. And I and I think there are people that get into broadcasting um, uh, in from both veins, and, and neither of them is the wrong way to go about it. I think there are people that really love sports and and they're sports people first, and so they find they find journalism and, and sports broadcasting as an avenue to stay connected to sports all the time. Um, I found myself more as being a, just a reporter, somebody that liked reporting, and I happened to have a passion for sports, so that's where I started. But, you know, we were at a time uh, in, the, in the industry where there were so many people that wanted to be sportscasters, and there were fewer and fewer opportunities. This was right around the time that Empire Sports Network, as you remember, uh, had folded. Um, a lot of these regional sports networks around the country were doing the same thing. They were just, And then also local television stations started dramatically uh, scaling back their coverage of sports. And I had a, a news director at the time, Vic Betters, uh who's still a good friend of mine. He's a general manager at a station in Providence, Rhode Island, come to me, and he said, you know, uh, you, know we, you, you obviously like to, to report, and would you like to start trying to report news? And so I started doing news during the week, and then I would do my sportscast on the weekend. And then my girlfriend at the time was uh, anchoring the noon new newscast, and they decided to expand the 5 o'clock news and add a 10 o'clock newscast, and he approached both of us and said, would you guys like to co-anchor it? So I co-anchored that show, uh, those two shows with my girlfriend at the time, and she's now my wife, so somehow our relationship hmm. survived that right. <laughs> at that time. Um, and that's when I first... And when I made that move, I, you know, it was a, a bit of an awakening for me, Sal, because... I kind of understood the role that sports plays in my life, and sports is an escapism for me um i I'm a fan first, and it was a it was a, to a certain degree liberating to make the move to news because I went back to being a fan and you understand this for for somebody that works as passionately as you do um you know I think people think well if you you know you cover sports for a living, you just get to go to games and that's fun, and that's true i mean i don't I don't think any sportscaster um uh, you know, turns their back on the idea that they are, are fortunate to be in that position, but it, it's certainly still a job, right? You know, there were many times I mean, back in the day, they used to let us sit side at Syracuse basketball games, uh, and I'm a Syracuse basketball fan. My wife's a Syracuse grad. I know you went to Syracuse, and you know, you wanted to jump out of your seat and cheer when you know somebody hit a three pointer, and you can't do that uh, as a member of the media. <laughs> And I remember, um, you know, making the transition to news and then going to a Syracuse game as a fan for the first time in a long time and, and, and really liking that feeling. And so I, I, I like being on this side of it better. I'm, I, I want to passionately root for my teams, um, and I want to go to the game just as a fan. And when I listen to you guys talk about sports, it allows me to kind of pull myself back uh, from the daily grind of covering news. And so I, it was one of the best decisions I ever made.
1: Is your wife still on TV?
0: No. Nope. So my uh, my wife got out of television. Um, uh, she, Utica was the only place she worked. Uh, kind of a side note to my career, and this is kind of where the politics bug, uh, uh, where where I got bit by the politics bug, was that I, I I left my television job in Utica to run for the state assembly um, in Utica back in two thousand two. Um, and I ran as an independent candidate and got killed, uh, but uh, it was a, a really life-changing experience. And from there, I went to Albany to cover the State House um, and anchored the morning news at the ABC, ABC affiliate there. So uh, we got engaged, and she came with me to Albany, and and she we worked in she worked in public relations for a little bit in Albany, uh, and then uh, she's been a stay-at-home mom uh, since then. So she being a mom was her number one passion. And I'm incredibly fortunate to have somebody uh, like her as a partner because she understands the business um, on a very uh, human level. So especially a job like I have now where I get a call in the middle of the night, which happened a couple uh, weeks ago, that there was uh, somebody uh, who pulled up to the White House and claimed that he had a bomb in the back. And I had just left after a 10-hour day. And my boss said, can you go back to the White House? And I was there until 4 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) She doesn't get mad about that. She understands uh, the demands of the job, and she gets the lingo and all of that, and so I'm really fortunate to have somebody like that uh, by my side.
1: I want to go back to that in a second, because I think there's a lot of parallels here between what we do both for a living on a different scale, but um, the first time I ever heard about you, knew who you were, you sent me a video of, I think it was your son, singing the (laughs) Sal Capaccio song? My daughter, Your daughter, I'm sorry. That's (laughs) what I wanted to ask you about your kids, though.
0: (laughs) yeah. Yeah, so, well, first let me tell you that story. So I am uh, an avid listener to the the WGR app, and, 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 you know, I've I've been a WGR fan since I was a little kid. My father would listen to WGR incessantly, uh, you know, on a small radio in his workshop in our basement. And uh, as a kid, we used to always complain because living in Jamestown, WGR didn't always come in perfectly. Um, And my dad would still fight through the static to listen to it because he was such a passionate fan. And and that stuck with me throughout my entire life. And um, so, yeah, so whenever you come on, they play the Sal Capaccio song. And my kids like that, the actual song, the right. Field song, right? Say Geronimo. Yeah, yeah. hey Geronimo, that's right. So they they would start singing it, you know, the Sal Capaccio. And I would, like, walk into a room, and I would hear them singing it under their breath. And I'm like, <laughs> are you serious? What's...? And so I, the tweet I put out, which you remember, was like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm listening to a little too much WGR. I my kids are singing the song, and then I had to beg my daughter to do it, but she did it. And uh, to this day, they still do it. I, it came on the other day, and they were still singing it. So, it's yeah, amazing. you can't ever let that go. That's because too popular too much a part of your identity
1: no I, definitely tom sitch uh former producer at wgr deserves some royalties for that for sure ryan noble's joining me here <laughs> he is the washington correspondent uh for cnn based in washington and uh he grew up in upstate new york he's a avid buffalo bills fan what other teams you like uh you grew up in buffalo you like syracuse like me you like the bills yep. who else you like in sports
0: i obviously love the sabers um i've been going to sabers games since i was very little my uh my cousin one of my best friends mike delaney uh grew up in Lancaster and I still one of my best sports memories of my entire life was he was on a Pee Wee hockey team in Lancaster. I think he played for the Wheatfield Blade and they played in between periods at a game at the odd and I was like fourth grade. And I remember we drove up like on a school night to watch the game and he made a he was a goalie at the time and made a big save and the entire odd like screamed loud for him and that was such a huge, huge uh, moment, um, But yeah, I've been a Sabres fan from the very beginning, firmly believe that was a goal. Uh, actually, I was covering sports in 99 uh, for U- in Utica, and there were a lot of Sabres fans in Utica, and so I covered that uh, Family Cup the whole way through. Um, so yeah, I've been a huge Sabres fan for a long time. I'm a big New York Mets fan, and that it actually comes from my uh, wife's side of the family, so, you know, a lot of Western New Yorkers, are their baseball allegiances are all over the place. Right. And I never really had a baseball team growing up. I was a huge Ricky Henderson fan <laughs> um, because my uncle, Mike Rodriguez, who's from Grand Island, uh, was a minor league baseball player in the A system and actually and actually played with um, uh, Ricky Henderson. And this is a true story. He taught Ricky Henderson how to slide. There are I mean, he's, numerous times Ricky Henderson has been, quoted as giving my uncle Mike Rodriguez from Grand Island credit for that he'd be a great podcast guest for you that's too. amazing um yeah so I so as a result I followed Ricky Henderson. So wherever Ricky went um I kind of was a fan of that team so I did work for the Yankees a little bit which now kind of sets me sorry Sal. <laughs> but um but uh anyway so when I went when I met my wife uh, her family are rabid Mets fans and Ricky was on the Mets at that time, so it was you know in the late '90s in that time, and so the the two kind of married themselves, and then we actually went and saw, I think it was 2000, right when the Mets went to the World Series, and I went with Carrie uh, and her father, and we were there for the uh, game five against the Cardinals, where they clinched to go to the World Series, which was one of the coolest sporting events I've ever been at, so. I've been a pretty hardcore Mets fan which is not easy frankly I mean, you know there are very there are a lot of parallels between the Mets and Buffalo's 14 I think it makes a lot of sense to be a Buffalo sports fan and a fan of the New York Mets. They kind of go right along together.
1: Yeah, I get it a lot. How can you be a Buffalo guy and be a Yankees fan? I get it a lot. But, you know, I grew up and I I became a Yankees fan at a young age. I'm Italian. What what do you want me to tell you, right? I
0: understand. I understand,
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, I want to go back to what you said about, uh, you know, late night, something happens, you got to go. It's so funny. So my parents were here for two weeks. My mom, my stepdad, they were visiting. And I I, I always tell them, you got to come during the dead period, essentially, for football, because I'm not really going to the stadium or practice right now. So we're walking around. We're taking my son, Max, to the park, and we're going for a nice long walk down the Elmwood Village. And my mom looks at me, and here I am, you know, in Buffalo. I'm living my dream. My mom literally looks at me, Ryan. She says, so do you actually have, like, a full-time job, or you only get paid when you work? And I said, you really don't know what I do for a living, Mom, do you? Like, she doesn't understand what I do for a living. And I kind of had to explain to her, Mom, I'm like a doctor on call this time of year, okay? That's basically yeah. what I am. And and, I, and it reminded me, that's kind of what you are in Washington. I mean, yeah. when news happens, you can't pick and choose when the news happens. Sure, you have a schedule. Sure, you have different things as Ryan Nobles that you have to take care of in your daily life, mm-hmm. but that is really the, the, the uh, essential piece of what you do. You have to cover the news when it happens, and that's Kind of the thrilling, exciting, but also, you know, um, I guess can be the burned out part of it for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and it's it's been that way my entire career. You know, it's it's obviously on a different level here at CNN, but even covering news in Utica and in Albany and Rochester, and I I spent eight years um, of my career in Richmond, Virginia, which is a huge honor and and a great place to live and work. Um, you just never know what's going to happen. I you know I, I one of the best examples is I remember when I was working in Richmond. And uh, my schedule then was 2.30 p.m. to 11.30 at night, depending on what was going on. And it was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd actually gotten ready for work, and I was hanging out with my wife, and our kids were really little then. And our house started shaking. And I'm like, what? Like to the point where pictures were falling off the walls. And I walked outside, and a couple of my neighbors in our neighborhood had come out as well. And we're like, did you feel that? Is that what we think happened? And turns out, we we experienced an earthquake, which wow. you just never expect uh, in Richmond, Virginia. And if you remember that earthquake, that earthquake um, happened. I think we in Richmond were about 40 miles from the epicenter in Mineral, Virginia. And the earthquake ended up being so huge that they felt the effects of it in Washington D.C. In fact, the the Washington Monument still to this day is feeling the lingering effects from that earthquake. And hmm. so as soon as that happened, my phone rings and my boss is like, you got to get here as soon as possible. Luckily, I only lived about 10 minutes from the station then. And we drove to the station and we were in live coverage all day long covering this earthquake. And that, I mean, that that's the best example, I think, of the news business in that I, I don't I didn't know anything about earthquakes. You know, I grew up on the East Coast. I've only been to the West Coast a, a handful of times that you don't think about an earthquake being something that you would need to understand. You know, I could talk all day long about lake effect snow growing up in western New York. In fact, that was my first assignment for CNN, was covering a blizzard in in Buffalo, which was a little ironic. But, you know, you, you had to get on the air, and you basically had to learn on the fly. You know, our producers did a great job bringing people on to talk about it. We had reporters that were dispatched to the scene to see uh, the, the impact of, of what had happened, you know, in some of these areas. I mean, people kind of joke about that earthquake because it's not like well, the one that happened in San Francisco, but there were uh, areas in our uh, community that were, you know, really hard hit. They had to completely rebuild some of the high schools in Louisa County and things. And so, yeah, that's that's what the job is. You know, you, uh, my old uh, uh, radio station advisor at Brockport, Warren Tazer S. P. we call him, he used to say, you need to be a, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. You've got right. to know a little bit about everything in news because you just never know where you're going to end up and what you're going to be covering. And, and I think that my career is a pretty good example of that.
1: Yeah, I called my brother after my mom said that. I said, can you believe mom Like, doesn't even know that I actually have like a full-time job with benefits? And, <laughs> yeah, you know, and he, made a, he made a comment, Ryan, he goes, and it made sense. And my brother's a little bit, a few years older than I mean, me, and he goes, Sally, you have to remember when mom grew up and dad, now my dad passed when I was young, but my stepdad, he said when they grew up, You always went to a place for work. Like that, if you don't physically go to a place, you're not working, right? He said, You don't go to a place a lot. You're at home. You know, you have to be aware of what's going on with the bills, but you may go somewhere one day, you might not, but you're always working. And I think that's right. That's kind of also the changing way that we live and the way we work today.
0: Yeah. And, you know, my parents were so funny. Um, They followed my career for a long time, obviously, but working at CNN has been the first time that my parents can turn on the TV and watch me in their actual house. Wow. You know, they. You know never, we never lived in the same city. My parents relocated to the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area shortly. Really, actually, it was right around the same time that I moved to Richmond. And it, was, it would always be so funny to hear my parents talk because my mom, I remember my mother uh, went to church with one of the uh, women that was on TV in Raleigh-Durham. And she would act as though she you, know, she, you know, she'd see this woman at church, and it would be like a celebrity sighting. She's like, I cannot believe I, I saw her at church. <laughs> I, can you? believe She looks so. She's just as pretty in person. And I'd be like, Mom, you know, I'm on TV every day too, but it didn't mean as much because they right. couldn't see me on TV every day. <laughs> That's uh, funny. So that it's better. It's been a real thrill for them to see me on CNN. They still don't like, you know, they have to watch 24 hours a day because they're just never sure when I'm going to pop up, but. Uh, yeah, that's, that's been a neat experience.
1: Now, I know you're not supposed to ask a good looking guy like yourself his age, but how old are you, Ryan, right now?
0: So I'm 40 years old. I turned 40 last September. Okay. So I graduated high school in 1994. I graduated Brockport in 1998. So, yeah. Jeez, um, man. I, th- I really I,
1: thought I, you were like early 30s. You look so great on TV.
0: Yeah, I'm like, come yeah. On. I, you know, it, it was. I've actually hit the point in my career where it's my baby face is actually starting to benefit me, yeah. you, know, you know, early on, like when I started in my early twenties, I looked like I was 16 and I, that, that helped me back to a certain extent. So, I'll take advantage of the fact that I,
1: I still can't grow beards. I think there's a benefit to that. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm a few years old and I just turned 44 this year. And the first major news story I can really remember in my life was the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan in 1980. I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was in class that day. What about you? Um, you know, what was the first really major news story that kind of consumed you that you remember as a child?
0: yeah so i we actually just had this conversation with a couple of colleagues up here the other day um because I was there uh Thursday night when they didn't pass the health care bill. I was there till three o'clock in the morning, and that I felt that like that was kind of a seminal moment um in American history, which I think we'll talk about for a long time because of the way it all played out but um, I, for me, without a doubt, the number one news story that I remember most vividly was the Challenger disaster. Yeah. I remember because that was something that, you know, for young people at that time, we were so focused on it because there was a teacher, Christy McAuliffe, was going to be on the the uh, the space shuttle, so it was something that school children in particular were so tuned into. And I remember coming home on the bus and hearing that news on the radio and thinking like That can't be right. That no, that didn't happen." And then getting home and just, like, consuming the news that night, you know, just watching the explosion over and over and over again and the subsequent memorial. So that was definitely – I think that was what initially really sparked my my kind of newshound interest. And then the other thing I need to give my parents credit for was that I just loved television. I mean, I still love television. and My kids now love television. But my parents really reined in my television uh, usage. But they always let me watch the news. So because I love television so much, I was willing to sit through, and my father watched news from you know five o'clock right through you know the national news at seven o'clock. and I would sit there and watch it all with him. And I think that's really what sparked my interest in, in being in television news as well because of that experience. and I just became obsessed with it. I loved all the, the national television anchors, all the Buffalo anchors. Um, you know it's, it, it was a real thrill for me. As I got on in my career to, to actually meet and get to know some of these folks uh, that I had watched growing up, um, I remember meeting Ed Kilgore for the first time. I was working uh, at the NBC affiliate in Utica, and um, so we had, you know, we uh, would work with them, and then I also I was at the NBC affiliate in Rochester. And when I met Ed Kilgore for the first time, it was like I had, I he was literally probably the most, the biggest celebrity to me that I'd ever met. He was such a huge thrill because he was such a big big, a seminal figure in my my young life growing up in Buffalo.
1: I was at the 98 Bills playoff game in Miami. I was working in Florida. Ed Kilgore was there. I didn't know him. I hadn't met him yet. They let us on the field for the final of like five minutes. You remember the game where Flutie got sacked by Trace Armstrong right at the end? Yep. Right? Yep. And yep. um and when Andre Reed on that drive, when he got up, he bumped the official. They threw him out. And I'm telling you, my first real interaction ever with Ed Kilgore was Ed Kilgore got so mad at the referee, he almost ran on the field to beat him up. It was unbelievable, and I said, that is Ed Kilgore, that is great, that was awesome that that happened, (laughs) and I always remember that about Ed Kilgore. Um, I want to ask you, Ryan Nobles, by the way, Washington Correspondent, CNN, here on the South Sports and Stuff podcast, thanks a lot uh, for being with us. I want to ask you how you separate your politics from your work, because for me, it's the same thing with the Bills and growing up here now. I, I'll, I'll readily admit, like, one of the things that I get criticized for by some of my own colleagues in this city, in this town is, well, Sal's a homer. Sal grew up. He's a fan. Look, and I always say, mm-hmm. everybody's from somewhere. Yes, I'm a Buffalonian. I want the Buffalo Bills to do well. I think me, though, my my as a professional, as a person, I think I can separate that and that you know is Mm -hmm. if you want to be professional and do it you're allowed to and you can and I don't hide from the fact that I grew up here I don't hide from the fact that I had season tickets and took a Greyhound bus from Syracuse University back for home games but when it comes time to a job to do I have a job to do and that's what I try to incorporate but I guess it's never going to be enough for some people how do you (laughs) separate your politics even though you were independent you have to have some leanings when you're on the air when you're reporting on the White House.
0: You know, Sal, I think this is one of the most important lessons that young journalists have to learn, and you have to learn it early on. And this is, a, this is an issue that I have studied uh, profusely throughout the course of my entire career, because I think the, the appearance of objectivity and the belief from your viewer that you are objective, especially covering politics, is one of the most important uh, important aspects of your credibility when it comes to reporting the news. And I – you know, there are a lot of, of people who've done this for a long time, and I respect their opinion, who argue that you just have to kind of be apolitical. You have to not have an opinion on this thing. You just have to remove yourself from it. And I don't think that's realistic. Uh, you know, we are all human beings. And what I've come – you know, this isn't something that I figured out early on. It took me a long time in this business to, to kind of come to this conclusion, is that you need to own your bias. You need to understand where you lie on the political spectrum. And and also the other thing I'd point out is that the political spectrum isn't a straight line, it's a circle. So right. you could easily find people on the one end that are super liberal on one thing and then might be described as being super conservative on another thing. And you need to understand where you sit on that. I mean, you, know, you know, we cannot deny our biases. You know, we all grew up um, in a certain part of the country. We are all a certain ethnicity. We are all a certain religion. We are all – you know, we all came from homes – you know, you lost your father at a young age. I've been fortunate enough to have a really strong father in my life. Not everybody has that uh, that benefit. You know, so, you know, I come from, a, you know, a, a middle-class family from a rural, ta- rural town. You know, over the course of my life, you you form opinions on things that uh, are inescapable. And so I think what happens to a lot of journalists is that they think that they can ignore those life experiences and then present the news from their place on the political spectrum and assume that it's the middle. And the fact is, none of us live directly on the middle of the political spectrum. We're all on it somewhere. And so what you need to do is own that bias and then almost overcorrect in certain instances. So if you feel a certain way about a certain issue, you need to kind of really write yourself with that and figure out how you feel about it. You don't need to reveal that to anyone. In fact, I would argue that it's not my responsibility to reveal my opinion on those things. Because that's not what you—that's not my role in this discussion. And so what I do is I try and figure out where I fit on all these these big issues, and then overcorrect or, or, or try and and bring you know force myself to the middle on it so that I can have a fair, objective accounting of each and every one of these issues. And it's not easy; it's an ongoing process. Every single day, you have to make yourself aware of that, but it can be done, and I think it's to the benefit of the viewer. And the other thing I'll say too, Sal and I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I've been thinking about a lot, is I think there's a big difference between sports and politics. And I think that for obvious reason, we over the course of history have really created where politics have become sport to a certain degree. And it's easy to see why. There are winners and losers. We essentially created teams in this country with Republicans and Democrats. And so people, you know, it becomes easy to, to view it through the eye, you know, through, through the arena. You know, that this is, these are two teams and there are winners and losers. But I think that's become part of the problem. And, and I think that, um, you, know, I, I, you know, I always tell people that no rational human being would continue to be a fan of the Buffalo Bills. If you, if you really <laughs> seriously looked at it objectively right, and you right. said to yourself, After everything the Bills have done over all these years, and they continue to lose and lose and lose, why would you continue to support them? Well, because my support for the Bills isn't rational. It's emotional. I have a a deep-seated connection to the city that I love and to the the experiences and the memories, and that that charging Buffalo means something to me beyond whether or not they win or lose. And and frankly, no matter what happens, I'm going to support them until the very end. Politics shouldn't be that way, right? You should you should come to politics with an emotion without trying to remove emotion from it and look at it rationally. And I think we've entered an era of politics where we've treated it too much like a sport, and I think that's the fault of a lot of people. I think it's the fault of the people that run campaigns. I think it's even to a certain extent the fault of those of us that cover these campaigns. But it's also the fault of the consumer of politics, that you be, when you become emotionally connected to a politician or an elected leader, you remove that rational uh, analysis of their performance, and you, and then you also remove the rational analysis of the performance of the person that's on the other team. So, like, if you if you bring it back to sports, like I hate Tom Brady. Now, I don't hate him as a human being. I, you know, he's probably a good person. I all that stuff, but I just can't stand him because he continues to beat my team over and over again. But if Tom Brady were a politician. I would have to look at him and say, this guy probably deserves to get reelected, right? Because even though he's not on my team, he's done a pretty good job as being a quarterback. Or if he were an elected leader, if he were like a senator, you'd have to say, this guy deserves to get reelected. And unfortunately, because people have gotten so deep-seated in their partisan viewpoint, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, uh, they're just going to continue to support their Republican uh, elected leaders, or they're just going to continue to support their Democratic elected leaders because of who, what team they're on and not how good of a job they're doing. So that kind of went off on a long rant there, but that's something I've been thinking about a lot because politics and sports are, are, are so often connected. And I, and I think maybe if we pulled ourselves back a little bit and didn't get so emotionally connected to our elected leaders, that maybe we could kind of break down this discourse a little bit and the acrimony would be a little bit different and maybe we could actually get some stuff done.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer. That's fascinating. I, I appreciate that a lot. I think um, one of the things, and it took me a while to kind of get there as well, Ryan, because of the, you know, like I said, the criticism that I might have received. For example, I mean, my, my first year on the sidelines, we were down in Miami on a Thursday night game. I did a TV spot for the local uh, CBS affiliate, and I was wearing my Bills, like a a, a shirt, a Bills collared shirt, because right. I was on the Bills radio network. And right, right. Alan Pergament, who writes for the Buffalo News, who is the TV journalism, you know, critic, basically, basically said, blasted me for it. Like, why is he wearing a Bills shirt? He's a he's supposed to be objective. And I said, well, I'm working on the yeah. Bills radio network. And by the way, I don't think it affects anyone and what they think about my opinion about an injury. Like, if I tell you a guy went off with an ankle injury, yeah. just because I'm wearing a Bills shirt doesn't necessarily make that untrue.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, in your position... Um, you know, I, I always think that the guys that do the Mets broadcast, Gary Clone and, and Ron Darling and, and uh, Keith Hernandez, they and obviously I have a bias towards them because I love the Mets. But, man, there's nobody more critical of the Mets than those three guys. And at the same time, there's nobody that wants the Mets to win more than those three guys. And I think that you can do both things. You can, you know, kind of... Uh, express your emotional connection to this team and your desire to see them do well, but then also look at it objectively and say, this guy sucks, you know. You right. know, you can do both things. And and where, I think Ryan, people I need to understand.
1: I'm, that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I've tried to use it to my advantage. Mm-hmm. That I think most people understand now that I'm passionate about this team in this city because I grew up here, and I'm mm-hmm. one of them. Kind of, you know, I'm one of these fans that I understand what right. you're going through. I've been through it. I was here yeah. Super Bowl years, and I think that matters to a lot of people uh, who you yeah. know follow me and, and write to me and things like that. And and I think I've, I've really been able to kind of use that. To my advantage, as I go on in, in uh, sports as well, so I think that's that part of. Well, I think
0: cool. the other thing. I mean, I think this probably happens to you too. It certainly happens to me. Covering politics is that very few of your listeners, viewers, the Twitter followers consume all of your work from top to bottom. Right. So, I, you know, that a big thing that frustrates me is, you know, if I do a story that is objectively fair but might be critical about a certain person from a certain party. My Twitter feed is loaded with people from that, the, uh, 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 that party who are hammering me saying that, you know, I'm biased in one respect or another. And I always say, well, did you see the story that I did a week ago about the other guy from the other party that was just as tough? And, you know, I think you, you, you need to allow the body of work to speak for itself. And I think you're a good example of that, that there are plenty of times where you're tough on the teams for not doing what needs to be done. But you're, there's also plenty of times that you give them credit where credit is due. Right. And and so, you know, you've got to kind of just put that in the background and just know from your perspective that you're doing the work um, and you're doing it as hard as you possibly can and, and you're fair. And, you know, obviously, at replies on Twitter, you just have to kind
1: well, <laughs> of – Well, speaking of that, I want to I I go down that road for a second because I get – obviously, I mean – I get people who come at me on Twitter, the trolls, the haters, whatever. It's it's minority. I mean, I have most of my followers and my mentions Ooh. are awesome, but I do get them. But I don't have the president have of the, the United States that doing that to me. Thought, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the president of the United States doing me doing that to me, okay? <laughs> you guys have that at CNN especially. Like, mm-hmm. I, h- how do you how do you like uh, treat that? Like is it something like a hey, we just have to completely block that out? It can it, become, it can become kind of like I think at some point somebody over there might want to kind of like, come on, man, you know, just be quiet. But you can't do that because you have to objectively report to have the president of the United States kind of, you know, go out there and fake news and all that kind of stuff that he does. How do you kind of treat that from both a macro and a micro level?
0: You know, Sal, I think as a company, it doesn't really matter what the president says about us or the the criticism that he might level at us directly um it literally goes in one ear or out the other you just read it and move on you know our job is to just continue to uh, objectively cover him as best that we possibly can and i i don't really think about it all that much to be honest with you and i don't think a lot of my colleagues think about it all that much um we're here to do a job um We are going to hold this administration as accountable as we've held every administration accountable in the more than 35 years of CNN's history. And I think that just like when we talked about, you know, your track record as a a sports reporter, I think this network has a pretty good track record as well. So, you know, the the big thing, I think the only thing that frustrates me about that situation is that we become the story. I, I didn't get into this business to become the story. Um, and so, I don't really think about it all that much. I think that uh, you know you 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 have to rely on your own integrity and your and your ability to to tell the story in a fair way. And I, we're just we continue to do that, and it doesn't really matter all that much.
1: So you are essentially the beat reporter for the White House, the way I am the beat reporter for a a, a sports team. Well, yeah, my,
0: so my, my, so my title is Washington Correspondent. So my, my main job right now is I'm on Capitol Hill. Gotcha. The bulk of my, so I'm, I'm I'm in kind of a catch all position here where I spend some time at the White House. um, I spend some time on Capitol Hill, but you know, I can easily end up at the Justice Department or wherever the need is. But my current assignment right now, they've had me throughout the entire summer in for the foreseeable future on Capitol Hill. So I haven't been at the White House all that much. I have spent a lot of time at the White House. Um, I've been at the White House when the president has specifically called our network out, um, and that is kind of an unsettling feeling, but something you just have to kind of move on from. Hmm. Um, But yeah, so my main goal now is Capitol Hill, and you know, Capitol Hill is is a really great beat because there's so much happening there. You have such incredible access on Capitol Hill. I mean, I'm literally talking to the most powerful senators in the country on a daily basis and the the situation in congress right now is in such upheaval um that every single day there's a big story coming out of there so that's been a great thrill to to be on capitol hill
1: when i was in florida i got to know somebody who was a uh white house slash washington correspondent um in the news spanned basically um i think maybe three or four different presidents was in it for a long time starting uh with Ford and Carter Reagan and told me a great story once about uh he said when when Jimmy Carter was president basically he would even have he could tell who was playing tennis on the courts because of the legs like he was so micromanaging like get you why are you out there why aren't you in your office doing your job and then um, when Reagan came in it was like hey I don't care what you do just get your job done your day is done like go have fun and he said it was such a difference I want to ask you about the atmosphere you don't have to necessarily get into the minutiae but what is the atmosphere like differently in uh, between a Barack Obama administration or at least just Capitol Hill and Washington and the feeling versus a Trump administration and the atmosphere and the, in the feeling in Washington.
0: So I covered uh, the Obama administration from, from richmond uh, at a local station okay um i didn't well that's not true i mean i guess i was at cnn towards the tail end of the obama administration but I, that being said i still covered the obama administration pretty closely because richmond and virginia we were a swing state i interviewed president obama three times as a local reporter and we got you know we were right in the mix in terms of a, uh, both the 2008 and 2012 campaigns and our congressman in richmond at that time was eric Kanner, who was the house majority leader and i covered his Shocking uh, primary night loss in 2014. So I have seen it from different positions, but I've seen the two different administrations. And I think the two biggest differences between the Trump administration and the Obama administration—and this isn't a criticism; it's just a difference—is that I think the Obama administration, to a certain extent, went out of its way not to make news. They didn't want, you know, they—it's not as if they didn't want to be in the news, but they didn't want the dramatic headline you know Obama wanted the impression that it was just a well-oiled machine and they were just, you know, pumping out, you know, daily work. They wanted to the, kind of the body of the work to speak for itself as opposed to the day-to-day. And the Trump administration is like, you know, on speed in terms of exactly, you know, the the pace and the amount of information that's coming out of there on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you cannot like calm down for even a second because you just don't know what's going to come next. And some of that obviously is connected to the ongoing investi- investigations and the stuff that's going on with Russia. But it's also just like day-to-day policy stuff. You know, he's he's announcing, you know, dramatic changes to the way um, he operates a government, which is essentially what he promised the American people when he ran. So, and I, and, you know, talking to my colleagues that have covered different administrations, you know, they're usually the pace of this thing happens is that the campaigns are always great. And the 2012 campaign, um, or the 2016 campaign, I should say. I'm losing track of days, uh, years. The 2016 campaign was crazy, uh, as all campaigns are, maybe a little bit crazier. But usually what happens is after the election there, you do get a sense of calm, and you kind of take a deep breath, and then the new administration kicks off, and then the first 100 days are a little crazy, but then there's a calm. We have not had a calm. Huh. From the moment he, the president won the election, through his transition, through his inauguration, through his first 100 days, through his 200 days... There has never been an opportunity for us to take a deep breath because so much is happening from so many different angles. So I think that's the biggest difference is just the pace is, like, something that, you know, none of us have ever seen.
1: You got a chance to um, interview Barack Obama, right, a few times?
0: Yeah, three times, yep.
1: Mm-hmm. What's, what's that, in the White House, what's that like be... kind of just, you know— I don't care if it's Obama, Obama, Trump, or whoever it is. Like, what's it kind of like to just be in that moment and say, I'm interviewing the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, essentially?
0: Yeah, it's a surreal experience, Sal. It it almost feels like you're outside of your body, to be honest with you. Um, And I I was fortunate enough because I interviewed him three times. I interviewed him once during the campaign when he was still a senator, and then twice when he was in office. Um, And... I think that having the benefit of interviewing him when he was still a senator kind of took a little bit of the edge off because I had had an interaction with him before. Um, But when I interviewed him when he was a senator, it was like at the height of the campaign. He was one of the most famous people in the world at that time. So it's not as if there wasn't a lot of pressure there. But there is a huge difference uh, interviewing a president of the United States inside the White House. You know, it's the ultimate home court advantage. (laughs) And I remember... um, preparing for the interview, and I didn't get that much time. It was like a 24-hour heads-up. They're like, you know, we're inviting you up to the White House on this day. Uh, you and uh, and Obama would do this pretty frequently. He would bring up a group of, you know, they strategically pick um, cities around the country where they wanted to get kind of a regional message out. And so they were like, you know, you can you come up to the White House on Wednesday and interview the president? You get, You'll get eight minutes or something. And I remember having, like, a moment where I had to take a step back and say, you know, one of the reasons – and, you know, as skilled as Donald Trump is with the media, uh, Barack Obama was skilled as well uh, in a different way. And I think that what Barack Obama was hoping, and I think this did happen to a certain extent, is that you you think bringing a local reporter up to the White House, they're going to be starry-eyed and they can't believe that they're in this moment, and you're going to get a pretty friendly conversation. It was his expectation. And I went in – to all three of these opportunities with that in the back of my mind, knowing that I had to uh, put that aside and kind of take a deep breath and understand the gravity of the moment and ask tough questions. And not only just tough questions about him being president at large, but also tough questions that specifically impacted our viewers at Richmond. This was a unique opportunity that we had and that I had to kind of be the voice for the people of Central Virginia and, uh, so I, you know, I, I, went in there with a game plan. I mean, I super prepped for that interview and it went pretty well. It ended up getting quite a bit of attention after the fact this was in 2009. Um, but I always joke that, um, when you meet a president of the United States and I don't know if this is like this for everyone, but it's almost like a wax figure, like you cannot, you know, it's like you see this person on television so often and I'd actually, you know, I'd seen him in person quite a few times cause I'd covered, a number of his rallies as well. But to go into this room where they have it all set up already, he's already sitting down, all the cameras are set up, and you walk over and shake his hand and you look at him, and you, it's almost like is this the real human being. Am I, am I really talking to him? <laughs> and so uh, it is a nerve-wracking experience, but uh, it was certainly one of my uh, highlights in my career. It's very cool.
1: Um, West Wing, House of Cards, Lone Survivor, lots of things out there about Washington, about the White House, how things work. Is there any TV show that actually, you know what, that that's not too far off, or are they all just kind of out there?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I'm a, West Wing is my all-time favorite show, and I would tell you that West Wing is what we wish Washington would be. <laughs> it's not actually the way Washington really is. Uh, it's not as idealistic, and it's not as, uh, you know, the they don't ever just kind of figure things out as, as easily as they did on the West wing. And so, uh, West wing, although I love it, that's not reality. House of cards is too far. Um, I mean, I kind of like house of cards. I feel it more escapism, uh, but it's not that bad, <laughs> you know, even, even under the current environment. It's not that bad. <laughs> it, a lot of people say this, and I think people think it sucks, but I think the, probably the most accurate comparison to what Washington is really like is speed. Which may sound crazy, but I think Veep. Veep, yeah the the um, the story with the the TV show with Julia Louis Dreyfus, uh, which is like ridiculously funny. Um, It's probably not as ridiculous as Veep, but I think the tone of Veep kind of more accurately describes what happens in Washington. I think that a lot of the what I think what I think is great about Veep is. It kind of shows that these are just kind of real people that have found themselves in these huge positions of power. And they all have they're narcissists, they're they're you know they all have the the things that they're uh, you know too selfish about, but they're also you know generally good people, but they're not perfect. and you know they're trying hard, but it doesn't always work out. Uh, and so it beeps the comedy, so it's only kind of the funny aspect of it. But I think it actually is the most true life uh, of all those shows that are out there about Washington.
1: We'll, we'll wrap up uh, here with Ryan Nobles, uh, transitioning the last few minutes here about our bills. Ryan, shall we do that? <laughs> We'll talk about the bills. Uh, Ryan Nobles, by the way, on Twitter you can follow him at Ryan Nobles. There's only one N in that, so it's like Ryan Obles. So, did someone that's have right. Ryan Nobles with the two Ns? or You just didn't like that. No,
0: I actually own Ryan Nobles with two Ns. Oh. And, you know, I, I was on Twitter in the early days, and I didn't, you know, who knew what these handles really meant? And I always kind of thought that I used that as an email address <laughs> for a long time, um, and so I just that's what I had on there. And then I ended up getting all these followers, and then I grabbed. Uh, Ryan Nobles with two ends, and I was at this point where I was like too far in, and so now it's just so yeah. So Ryan <laughs> Nobles with two ends I control, and which annoys other Ryan Nobles who sure. actually have called me out on Twitter for that. Um, but
1: yeah, you big, yeah. you big uh, Washington correspondent guy. You know, yeah, that's what you, um, you the story you just told about Obama and Trump, the difference it kind of really reminds me of. A good segue here, uh, Rex versus McDermott, right? I mean, Rex was all about the headlines. Yeah. He wanted to bring the attention to himself, and at the time, I think a lot of people liked that in Buffalo. I think even Terry Pagula kind of wanted that. Yeah. He wanted to show that he could get the big
0: dog. Well, that big dog oh, actually I love the Rex hire. When it happened, I was really excited about Rex. I right. you know, The big thing, the thing that frustrates, Bill, I think, a lot of us that live out of town is that sometimes the bills are just irrelevant. You know, when you watch. Sports Center. They don't talk about him. And right. the one thing that Rex did was he brought attention to the city and to the team, not all the time positive attention. But I, you know, I think he's affable. Like he, I loved the fact that he was so, uh, such a homer for the team. You know, that you know the silly stuff like uh, you know changing the paint scheme on his truck and you know getting the tattoo. Like to me, that's like for someone, especially somebody that's out of town, where you know like the bills are part of my identity. You know, right. I've got a. Uh, you know, a magnet on my truck, and, and when I wear a Bill shirt into Home Depot, that almost, it happens almost every single time. If I'm wearing a Bill shirt somewhere in D.C., another Buffalonian will come up to me and say, this is the year. That happens almost every single time, Sal. I, 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 that probably happened to you in Florida as well. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's displaced Buffalonians all over the country. And so the idea that Rex was kind of a unifying force in that respect is true. But you know what's interesting about that, that comparison – is app uh, what always happens in sports, and it happens in politics too, is that especially if you go through a period of time, and even sometimes when you go through a successful period of time, when you transition to a new leader, people often want the exact opposite of what they had before. Right. And I, I think we see that with Obama and Trump for sure. You know, it, it, uh, the, you know, Barack Obama still very much liked. His approval rating is is very high, but Americans sometimes just want to change. And I think that's what we saw with Donald Trump. And this is the same thing with the Bills. I mean, you know, you go from somebody like Rex, who is like this, you know, showman and, you know, kind of played fast and loose. And then from what I can tell from McDermott, he's much more of a tactician and is going to be is going to keep things a little bit more low key. So, you know, I think it's a good thing right now. But, uh, you know, with the Bills, just, you know, you don't (laughs) take anything for granted.
1: (laughs) Well, when when McDermott was hired after the dust kind of settled, one of the things that I was told was the more boring we can be for the next, you know, nine months Uh, eight months, whatever. That's what we want. We just want to be boring. They wanted to get so far away from everything that was happening. And I think they've really done that aside from obviously Adolphus Washington got arrested. I think that was kind of the biggest thing that happened. And that was big, but we really didn't have those types of headlines that Rex was making. So here we are now training camp, another season upon us. I know you, you have to be the ultimate optimist. If you're a Bills fan, it's been 17 years, but you know, what do you think about, you know, the team, the coaching staff and what they're trying to build here?
0: Well, here's my theory about the drought and the bills, and I and I just have to believe that there is going to come a year where the, all the different wacky pieces of the super of the NFL with such parity are just going to fall in place. And even though they might not have the best roster, and even though they may not have the best team out there, that somehow there's going to be this weird combination of factors that play into a season. And then they're going to end up in the playoffs, probably as a wild card. Because as long as in the division is going to. And I just I can't understand. I mean, like that's happened to every other team in the league. I feel you know. There's been these like weird years where like the Bengals get in, or like you know the Chiefs get in, and and, and they're not really that good a team. Um, but somehow you know the schedule fell just the right way, and the people that they were competing for with the for the play. I feel I feel like that's happened with the Dolphins a couple years, where they just really weren't that good of a team, but yet. The way this, the season played out, the the records at the end of the year and the head-to-head allowed them to get into the playoffs. I just don't understand why that hasn't happened to the Bills at least one time over the course of this enormous drought. So I guess that's the um, – the, I don't know if that's really a positive feeling that I have. I mean, I don't feel like the roster is necessarily so gangbusters this year that they are going to pull it off. Um, I don't think they've improved that much. But, you know, I – I I have a soft spot for Tyrod. You know, uh, he was Virginia Tech's quarterback when I was in Richmond. And so, I you know, I, I worked with a ton of Virginia Tech fans and people that love Tyrod Taylor. So I want to see him succeed. I think he's a good person, and he's fun to watch. And I do think that there's something to be said about the fact that they haven't really let him go. And maybe if they do let him go – that he could rise to the challenge. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I don't hold out great optimism, but you never know, right? (laughs) You never know.
1: You never know. I know. I hear what you're saying. I do like the foundation they're building. I don't know where it'll go this year. I mean, we may be in the, in the hunt on the back page, <laughs> well, you know, watching a, yeah. watching a game in December, but I really believe there's, there's a clear vision and path, at least, that McDermott and Brandon Bean are laying. And I don't know, we, we interviewed uh, Brandon Bean the other day, and I said on the air, Ryan, I said we were at camp, and I said, okay, I really know I'm old now because I'm older than the head coach, the GM, <laughs> and the assistant GM. So it's, it's a long time. I'm getting old now.
0: Yeah, well, what like, Brady turned 40, I'm like, okay, yeah. as long as Brady's still in the league, I could still potentially be an NFL quarterback, right? That's right. And, and, <laughs> and what
1: you and I do, at least the good news is nobody's timing us in the 40 anytime soon. We can do what we're doing now exactly. for a long, long time. Ryan Nobles, uh, CNN, Washington correspondent. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ryan Nobles. That's only one N right there. Ryan, I really appreciate it. Like I said, you were one of the first guys I really thought of when I wanted to do this, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was a fascinating conversation. I hope a lot of people learned something and really enjoyed it.
0: So, my pleasure huge fan of you huge fan of everybody at wgr and uh love western new york and i hope uh you know my friends and family that are in that area will listen and uh good luck with this season buddy we're going to be watching from afar so don't forget about those of us that are out of town that are hanging on your every word
1: well august 26th, we'll be in baltimore so if you can make it up to that preseason game let me know okay
0: all right buddy i will